0: Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis might be more fashion than Donald Trump,
1: and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it just shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away, or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong, hey, I'm so sorry, yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snapbook, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done a society because they were non Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snapbook, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway.
0: Back in the good old days. You could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, "I have a college degree." But now that's not the case. So we're going to sit there. We're going to back on these kids. We're going to sit there and say, "You're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars in debt." And in many cases, some will pay for maybe twenty or thirty thousand dollars they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the competitive interest.
1: Now, here are your Hackers of the Week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla <clears throat> Welcome back into the Snap Hook, another sports edition, our Thursday show. We appreciate everybody joining us. As always, I'm Tim. He's Scott, and we've got a special guest with us here tonight, Sean Bajani. We appreciate you coming in
2: and joining us. I appreciate you guys having me, man. Always good to talk <laughs> some ball. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, I think Sean uh, and I met. I'm this is about 16 years ago. Actually, we were both on the uh, same coaching staff at Mount Carmel High School. Sean uh, was the baseball coach. I was the volleyball coach. And well, unfortunately, that school closed. But um, yeah, here we are. So pretty it, crazy,
2: you know. I was I talk about that all the time. You know, my coaching career. That's when it got started. You know, uh, coaching high school baseball back at my alma mater, man. I don't know what you felt like around that time, 16, 17 years ago, but I was like, I'm never leaving this place. And then the diocese was like, ha ha, all of you are.
0: <laughs> uh, well, you know, I had left the year before and it closed, but I remember hearing like just one day, like, you know, everybody shows up at school and all of a sudden they're like, oh, you're going to a job fair. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, the nice. worst.
1: <laughs> so, so Sean, real quick, I I know it's everybody's path to, to being on air is a little bit different, but I'd, I'd love if we could kind of start before we get into talking Astros and and some other baseball things. Of what was that path like for you? You know, I know a, a lot of people um, tune into to the station that you're on, six ten there, but you know, they all wish, oh, I could do that, I could do that. Uh, you know, and coming from myself, you know, I I worked my butt off to get there. I, I interned, I, I worked in minor league baseball, and. And here we are, you know, hosting a podcast now. So, what, what was it like for you to to make that jump, and, and what
2: did it it look like to get there and stay? First off, I don't know what you did, but I'm jealous that you just get to say you worked in minor league baseball. Um, I was the broadcaster for uh, for a team for a couple seasons. Then I'm really jealous. Uh, you know, it's it's weird. All right, so <clears throat> try to make this kind of short. Um, when I was in college, I had no idea what I was going to do up until like my junior year when I had to declare a major and, you know, uh, some little old ladies at church, you know, always said, well, you do such a great job reading the readings and you have a really good voice. And, um, when I had to make that decision, I was just like, what can I do where I can do that and stay in sports? And I was like, well, let me, Let me try TV production because their radio department at U of H didn't exist at the time, unfortunately. Um, So I thought I was going to be on TV, and I majored in broadcast journalism. Got an internship at KPRC Local Two. Got a chance to work with Steve Mark, Randy McEvoy, Adam Clanton when he was there. Made some great contacts. Got an internship at the radio station at Sports Radio Six Ten, and met some great people there. And it was just kind of like I graduated college. And it was like, who's going to, you know, bite first. And it was Sports Radio 610. Right after my internship, they hired me on. Um, And kind of the rest is history. Um, I thought I was going to be in TV. I got a radio job and started excelling at radio. Ended up getting a full-time job, hosting the night show. uh, Three years after I'd gotten hired, which was great. Uh, Did that for about four years. And uh, then I missed coaching, you know. And I really wanted to get back and, you know, paychecks and the time off. That was really appealing. And I thought I was going to do that for the rest of my life and do part-time radio. And then, you know, life happens. I had to give up coaching uh, within the last year. And now I'm back covering the Texans, Rockets, Astros, you name it, Houston sports, and I'm loving it. And uh, now I'm a dad. So that makes it that much more cooler because my boys always like, dad, where are you going? I'm like, well, I'm going to a basketball game. I'm going to a football game. I'm going to a baseball game, whatever it is. And so it's kind of fun to be able to share that with him now.
0: Yeah. I think what's, um, and, and yeah, your journey has been really neat, uh, for, for our listeners who who may not know, um, you and Brandon Scott are pretty much the six ten website. I mean, y'all are, y'all are, you know, pretty much, you know, probably 90% of what's going on there. So, you yeah, know, how do you, how do you feel, um, you know, where where you were, you know, a host with um with Barry Warner, you know, back in the day. And how would you compare that to now where you're you know you're in the locker room, you know, actually asking questions and and covering, you know, sports on a daily basis like that?
2: Well, when I first started in two thousand and six, um, you know, right after my internship was over, I actually got another internship. So I interned there in the spring and in the fall when I graduated. And so upon my second internship, I got a chance to go into locker rooms and interview guys. Uh, Our staff was really, really small at the radio station back then Um, about as small as it is right now before it blew up. And we had a ton of part-timers and it was really hard to get hours and exposure and opportunities to create relationships with teams and players. Um, But when I when I officially got hired at the end of 2006, my job was to go get audio, um, not to write, not to really even report on anything, but just, hey, go get audio from the Astros after a game, go to Rockets, go to Texans. I didn't miss one of those games, Astros, Rockets, Texans, a Rice football game, uh, U of H football, basketball, baseball, you know, whenever there was an opportunity to go, I didn't miss a game for about six years. And when I'd gotten hired to work with Barry and it was really 2008, we didn't officially get offered a contract until 2009. Um, that obviously ate into any sport that was going on during the week at night, but it was also my job to do pre and post game rocket shows. So I didn't miss a rocket game for a long time. And, you know, it's different hosting a show because that almost naturally takes you out of a locker room takes you out of opportunities to network and meet and talk with teams and players and such and unless you're already kind of connected where you can call guys email guys all the time like Barry and a lot of other hosts that have been around a lot longer it's more difficult for me so getting this opportunity now I love it I do miss talking you know and sharing my emotions my raw feelings you know on on the radio and having that good back and forth with listeners on a daily basis. But I really enjoy getting a chance to know people, you know, that represent our city to play for our teams. Um, I hadn't had really an opportunity ever to do that because when I first got the job, I was so young and I didn't know anything. And I was just not starstruck at all by any stretch, really. Um, but I just didn't know how to do it. I learned on the job and it took me a long time to figure things out. So if I knew then what I know now, I mean, who knows? Um, And if our website, if our station was as fully functional and optimizing what we do in terms of Houston sports coverage, then as we do now, it'd be, it'd be a lot different. So I enjoy what I'm doing now, probably about equally the same. I mean, there's elements that I miss, obviously being on the radio.
1: Real quick, you, you mentioned a show that I I very much remember listening to and, um, you know, I, a host that I, I had a chance to intern with at, at ESPN seven uh 97.5 with, with Barry, he had what what I feel like could only be described as a very combative style, um, and I I still remember sometimes because I worked in the restaurant business and I would catch that show on on the, on the way home and what was it like sometimes working with with someone with a personality like that where. You know, I still remember sometimes where I felt like you were you were like flabbergasted on air with some of the things he would say. Um, you know, I, I don't want to disparage anybody, but it, when when you would come into work every night, what was it like knowing like I've got to have got to
2: play my role, you know, and I've got to play it
1: well, but at the same time, like I enjoy what I'm doing, keep that headset
2: right. Well, there's probably a couple factors there. Uh, one, just Barry uh, alone, you know, he's New York from New York. He's got that uh, brash personality to him. So it's kind of natural. You know, you could look at it as combative. I just, I really looked at it as um, supreme confidence. Um, you know, he, he knew what he was about. He knew what he could do. He knew what he could bring um, to the radio station or to anything that he set his mind to. I mean, the guy's written a book now. And it's fantastic. Um, I urge people to go check that out. But um, I, I'd I never looked at him as, as combative, just that, you know what, I know who I am and I'm going to let you know it. And it's, we, we have to have conviction in our opinions. Otherwise, you know, why are people going to listen to us? We have to have the ability to kind of bring in insightful ideas, thoughts, opinions to the conversation. And if not, why are people going to listen to us? And so I thought he was kind of a natural at that. And it really worked so well for him for what, 40 years and broadcasting, maybe five different decades. So, but I also think, too, uh, going to work every day, it was a little bit more challenging starting off because we did this crosstalk, t- you know, segment uh, where we'd go in towards the end of a show and kind of preview our show. And we rarely got to preview our show because it immediately became him and Josh Ennis. Uh, going back and forth at each other and I just wanted to scoop my eyeballs out because it put Barry in a bad mood a lot of the times to start our show but then too he knew I was young and passionate and I cared about stuff that he didn't care about and so I would bring that fire some nights like hey we gotta talk about this and he would just look at me like you're insane (laughs) you know (laughs) you're so dumb. I'm not spending any time on this with you. And he would do it on purpose without me knowing. And so really for about a year and a half, he pushed my buttons without me realizing what he was doing. And I don't know what it took for me to figure that out. But once I did, we had a lot of fun working together and we FaceTime each other pretty regularly. You know, my life is really super crazy right now within the last year. Um, so in really the last couple of three months. So we don't do it too regular, but I mean, he's like a, a virtual grandfather to my to my son. So it's it's a really cool relationship, and I'm glad we've been able to carry it on.
1: I remember those those crosstalk segments. Well, I, was, I grew up listening to Sports Radio 610 in Houston, and, and Josh Ennis led to, I think, at least three of the most awkward moments in, in Houston sports history. The, the one where the guy was making fun of his dad. Uh, and, and Josh like walked out of the studio and, and it, all that was just like live on it. I mean, he, I, I couldn't believe that he had the job. Someone like was trying to get that job. I in, i did my internship, I wasn't getting a chance. And, and here's Josh Ennis, right? Just doing what he did, prime time, keyhole spot. Like it was, I couldn't imagine, um, going into the office some days. Like you're in your great mood, ready to your show, and just like stuff has popped off on your way in from your drive.
2: You know, uh, <clears throat> There's obviously a a lot of different views and opinions about Josh, but I always viewed him as, I don't think it's too strong, uh, a brilliant radio guy. And, you know, I I would actually even kind of take a little bit of that away. Like maybe "brilliance" is too strong of a word for a guy who just has the natural ability to literally entertain on air As soon as the light comes on, like he was so good. I mean, think about it. Like if you didn't like the conversation, if you didn't like him personally, if you didn't like some of the things that he wanted to talk about, then, you know, play this game with yourself. What happens when you're on the freeway and there's an accident on the other side of the road? Like, what do you do? You slow down and you look, you rubberneck. You want to see that. Why do we watch NASCAR for the people that don't really like NASCAR? You want to see the wrecks. You want to see something crazy happen. You know, and I think people hate listened to him to a certain degree. The numbers went out when he was there with us. Our ratings were terrific. Um, we literally became Houston's sports leader across the board with him there. And, you know, the issue was is that while he was good for the radio, it wasn't necessarily good for um, camaraderie, I guess, Um building relationships. If you're worried about that kind of thing, which he wasn't like they forced Whitley. I think I told you that guys this before we even started, um, gave a quote to Astros future today. And he was like, when I make it back, I'm coming for their next. Well, that was Josh's mentality. It's like, we're not on the same team. Like I'm competing against everybody here at this station, period. I'm here to be the best. And no matter what it takes, that's what I'm going to try to accomplish. So that was kind of his demise unfortunately there in other places and you know seemingly uh everywhere it sounds like that he's been so far
0: yeah i think uh if and you, you can correct me if i'm wrong but it seemed like uh, rich ward hated his guts um you know it seemed
2: like that right but and, and to be honest with you i can't i can't factually speak on any of that but You know, kind of being there on the daily basis for you know a lot of the time. I guess he was there when I had my show. It seemed like a lot of the time, maybe most of the time. I don't know. Um, What you heard on air wasn't necessarily real life. Not that they everything was a bit or anything, but you know, Rich is a pro. (laughs) I mean, if there was a spat on air, they kept it on air, and then when the mics turned off. You know, they figured it out. I mean, I know they had dinner, you know, at Rich's house a number of times. (laughs) Um, And I think Rich, for his own sanity, maybe was just trying to figure out how to make it work to where they could coexist and he could get peace and sleep at home. I mean, you know, sleep at night without him worrying about, I got to go to work with this guy again tomorrow. You know, Barry and I would legitimately get into some huge arguments not just disagreements about sports, but I mean, we would just get into arguments about how we want to do the show, how we want to sound, what we want to bring to the audience, you know, because we, we cared that much. It's just a lot of the time. Uh, and you know, it was most of it was, I was starting out. Like I had my ideas and he had his ideas and then the program director had his own ideas, how we should do it. And unfortunately the program director, um, you know, Gavin Spittle, whom I, I have him to thank literally for everything, for even my situation today, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without him. I don't know what I would be doing without Gavin Spittle, to be honest with you. But he loved the fact that we did this, loved it. And people that listened did as well. And to this day, you know, Barry and I still both catch people like, oh man, I missed the show, da, 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 da. And it's like, yeah, I missed doing the show about the last year and a half of it when I figured out what the hell was going on and <laughs> I can enjoy it, you know. So um, as bad of arguments as we'd get in, when the mics would turn off, we'd figure it out. We'd walk to our cars together at night. We'd gap it up and we were good. On to the next day, ready to roll.
1: When you transition to, you know, being in the locker room a little bit, little bit more, uh, making those relationships <laughs> – What's been some of your favorite moments um, that you've had? Obviously, you know, a couple of World Series championships. Uh, the, the Rockets have uh, have played at a, a very, very high level. You know, realistically, an, an injury away from a NBA Finals. Um, some high Texans moments, some low Texans moments. You know, what's what's been up there for you? That's that stuff that you
2: remember and and some some people that you remember from those runs. Um, I was blessed. You know, the Rockets sticks out immediately because. Um... You know, from two thousand six till about two thousand and thirteen, I didn't miss one rocket home game, one rocket practice. I was there. Um, and it was really great to be around some awesome coaches covering Jeff Van Gundy, Rick Adelman, Kevin McHale. Um, being there, you know, for the most part of Yang Ming's career, seeing him Develop that that's that Yao Ming era really is my favorite and most memorable era of Houston Rocket basketball in terms of me being um, you know a a, a journalist or a radio host you know they're different hats sometimes but I really enjoyed covering him nobody was more genuine helpful um, to the media and just an all-around great dude but there were some fantastic teammates that he'd had and I mentioned the coaches as well um, that sticks out. You know, the Astros does as well. You know, one of the guys that just kind of made me feel like I kind of belonged and it, it almost just like I was able to take a breath was early, in my early days. It was my first year, really. Craig Biggio, when he was still playing, uh, I remember being in the clubhouse one night waiting for somebody to come out and, you know, Biggio just walks down the locker room floor in a towel and he's got a toothbrush stuck in his mouth and I'm just standing there kind of near his locker and he sits down and he looks down at my shoes and I, I notice him kind of looking at me and he goes dude where'd you get those shoes <laughs> I looked down at my shoes and I, I look like hell I'm just in a t-shirt and jeans and what I thought was some raggedy shoes and they were like some Chuck Taylors with like some snake skin on the side or whatever and I'm just like Someplace in the mall, man. Um, <laughs> just trying to make him sound like a little bit better than they were, and just haven't. We ended up talking ball and just about whatever. And for 15 minutes while I'm waiting on these players to show up so I can ask them questions, and um, that made me feel like I belong. You know, he's talking to me, and this is like my childhood hero, <laughs> you know. So that that era really stands out. Texans covering JJ Watt. I mean, I don't know who wouldn't say that. Um, the Texans have been really fantastic. Football's so much different than baseball and basketball covering in this town because at least for me, I've found it much easier to approach the football players over the years than anybody else. To me, they were just a lot easier to talk to, um, get to know them as people. Um, and maybe that would be me. I naturally am a baseball nut. And so you might think like, man, baseball should be an easy end for you. You talk ball with these guys and You'd be surprised, like baseball's every single day, how little these guys actually want to waste time talking ball with you when they do that with their teammates every day. Maybe that's a little bit it too, but um, football players have been great over the years, and I have to say the J.J. Watt era um, was probably my favorite. Um, Brian Covering Brian Cushing, D'Amico Rines, had the opportunity to cover him, Jonathan Joseph, Arian Foster, um, Amon Green I thought was fantastic once you got to know him. So, I mean, there's just so many guys. Like I said, that's my favorite part of the job now is having that opportunity to go and build a relationship with players every day.
0: Uh, As we kind of transition our conversation a little bit, kind of segue, Mm
2: -hmm. I guess, you know,
0: the biggest controversy, you know, since the World Series was, you know, what happened with James Click and then, you know, obviously bringing in Dana Brown a few months later. And I don't know, as, as somebody who's probably more inside than we were, um, what was what was your take on you know how that whole situation you know came down?
2: I mean, click felt like dead man walking for months. Um, you know that seemed to be the consensus leading up to um, even before the postseason had started. It's just you know if, if, if they were serious about keeping that guy around, they didn't need postseason success to dictate the future. Uh, to dictate his future that is and so I think you know just kind of reading between the lines if the Astros and Jim Crane were going to make something happen with him they would have done it a long time ago um, because that's not something necessarily you want to concern yourself with you want to have your GM in-house um, and his people in-house focusing on the job at hand I mean they're starting off-season work well before the off-season actually begins and it was just odd that you know he went to the winter meetings in Vegas, you know, with no deal and the conversations that he must've had there. Um, the awkward, you know, like, Hey, what's going on. And if you're, if you're click, you know, maybe he didn't himself really know what was going on. Maybe he knew all along what, what the deal was. And he just kind of had to put a face on, but I don't know. It's just interesting to me for the Astros and Jim Crane to say, Hey, uh, you're probably not going to be here, but go ahead and hit those winter meetings up and use it maybe more so as a uh, you know opportunity to interview for your uh, prospective future job uh, than really helping us out. Because it seemed like everything that the Astros were going to do, Jim Crane was going to handle. Jeff Bagwell was going to be the face of it. He needed, Crane didn't want to be the guy in front of the camera or the microphone. And who was the best guy available for that? Well, Jeff. Well, you know what? That was surprising to me because up until really the last year or so, Jeff would be the last guy I'd want to put in front of a TV camera or a microphone. And I have yeah. to say, that he did a really admirable job um, doing what Jim wanted him to do. And Jeff wasn't even comfortable going into the booth and analyzing games over the years. You know, that's something that he kind of grew into. And obviously, I think a lot of it had to do with his personal issues and thankfully, um, you know, since he got put into the Hall of Fame, he's been able to figure those out, um, you know, with uh, you know some of the challenges that he's had, obviously. Um, and he's doing really well now. And I think the fact that the Astros knew that he was having problems, but could be such an asset, had such a great mind and eye um, and, and respected voice in the game, they needed to put this guy to work. And it was just, it's available if, if Jeff wants it. And once Jeff started, you know, doing better personally, I think uh, he stepped into a role that suited him well. I never thought he wanted to be a GM. I don't think he ever does want to be a GM. Um, But I think he just wants to help and utilize his baseball knowledge and have a team utilize his baseball knowledge. So um, I thought Dana Brown was the guy all along. Um, He was the perfect fit. They needed somebody with front office experience. You know, you didn't want some newbie coming in and taking over an organization that has been on the run that they had the last six years, that has gone through such a facelift built from the, you know, top down and then back up again. You didn't want some newbie coming in. You needed to get a real good baseball guy, somebody that's got a track record, didn't necessarily have to be a GM before, but somebody that's been around the game and, you know, helped evaluate talent and dana brown fit that absolutely perfectly and you want to see a guy too that other people want and i'm going to mispronounce his name but it's a greek name right is it anthopolis yeah, mm-hmm. yeah when you when you see a guy like that so respected and has such a you know successful track record when those guys have their guys whether it be in toronto you know where they started i believe and uh, I forget their second destination Then end up in Atlanta together. And you see this success, success that that minor league system in the pro ball uh, club has had. I want that guy too. I want to talk to him at least. Let, let, let me take him out to dinner and, and pick his brain. And I just thought it was a perfect fit. And uh, so long as Dana's happy here and he continues to do a good job, I think this is going to be a really long and healthy relationship uh, between him and the Houston Astros and Jim Crane.
1: I think a lot of the Astros fans, you know, I think myself specifically, one of the frustrations you have with Crane was just the unwillingness, it seemed to, not Crane with Click, rather, but to spend the big money, right? You have, in, in consecutive years, you have uh, Springer walk and everyone goes, okay, we've got to, it was justified as we've got to be able to pay, we got to be able to pay Korea. We've got to let Springer go so we can pay Korea. Well, then it's, it's CREA's time. And after all the dust settles, you know, the Astros weren't even close when it comes to an an offer for Correa. So now we got to save up, you know, Verlander's contract's coming up. Now Verlander walks too. Yeah, you don't want to spend money like that on on an older guy. But still, like three straight years, you lose three straight stars because, you know, a GM was not able to uh, negotiate an extension before it got too expensive to do so. And then at that point, you're, you're bidding against the open market. Uh, I think with, with Dana specifically, you look at his the, the Braves' history of getting their stars signed early. Um, I think that's something that's going to play out vitally here in Houston. But I am a bit nervous as as both Fromber and, and Kyle Tucker ahead into the season. Um, you know, still not signed on extensions, and from everything we've seen, you, you look at the, the the way that Kyle was swinging the bat in the World Baseball Classic. You know, his exit velo. Was as high as it always is. You take away the shift that you know. All signs point to Kyle Tucker having a fantastic year. You know, barring something freaky, that number is just going to keep going up. So I, I am a little bit worried in terms of you know every year, how much can you withstand loss-wise of, of losing great players every single year? But um, you know, we we do have uh, some good some good people in charge of it, and 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 hopefully with Dana's extension of. Uh, pardon me, his history of building those extensions out.
2: You know, I I do see some hope there. Yeah, Yeah, it just doesn't sound like there's going to be any bend. I I won't say bend. It doesn't sound like there's going to be much room for Jim Crane to ever feel comfortable, ever allow his general manager to approach, you know, double-digit contract years. You know, he might bend to seven, to eight, maybe nine, Um, But the average annual value, you know, that Kyle Tucker wants, is that going to make sense for a shortened contract period if you're talking about a Fromm or if you're talking about a Kyle Tucker? I mean, don't look now. I mean, we still have a couple of years to enjoy of Alex Bregman before his current contract is up. But he's here on a steal of a deal, to be honest with you, just like Altuve. You know, those those two guys signed. Their extensions, like right around the same time, I believe. And you look at those numbers and you're like, man, wow, Jordan. You know, are you kidding me? Like, this guy looks like he's going to be a superstar amongst superstars in this game for the foreseeable future. And he's here on a hell of a deal. Um, I I, I think it's just a matter of time. And Kyle Tucker seems like he's going to be the next guy, not named Correa, not named Springer, that's going to get paid, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily want to give that. You know, wink, nod. Here's the gun, hometown discount to the Houston Astros. Like, he's gonna want to maybe test the market, or he really does love it here and he really wants to stay here. And there's this, uh, you know, continued future, this con- the promise of them contending for World Series championships. Jim Crane might have to break a little bit, you know, and and fork over some serious money and some serious years to a guy and feel the heat a little bit, be in the uh, make things uncomfortable. Um, I think Dana Brown's going to absolutely push for that. I love the fact that he is aggressive and he's not afraid to say that he is aggressive. And, but it's also at the same time, something to kind of keep an eye on because you never want a guy coming in and for the sake of making a mark. And I don't know if Dana's going to do this. I don't think he will, but you don't want him doing too much. Um, you know, he hadn't made a move yet. Let's see what happens. You know, if the Astros with these lesson division games down the road, you know, you're not playing your divisional opponent 18, 19, 20, uh, 20 times a season. Now, you know, you're going to be seeing other teams. team. So does that maybe make, uh, the division race a little bit closer? If in fact, there are some injuries or maybe some guys slide production wise, does he feel the need to go out and get a dude for the starting rotation? Does he feel the need to go out and get a dude, um, you know, to fill a spot in center field or to left field, depending on what happens with Brantley. So, we haven't seen him make a real bold move yet, and so until he does, um, I'll be kind of intrigued to see his approach on what exactly aggressive means for him in terms of going out and making a move.
0: What's kind of interesting slash exciting to me is, is whatever um, a situation like with Dana Brown, because he's coming in, none of these guys are his. None of them. And so you know, it's going to be interesting to see where he lands on some guys. Like you know, there's some guys like uh, like I look look at last year, like Jake Myers when they kept throwing him in the lineup. I'm like, God, you know, just put Chaz out there, please. Just do, you know, then they put Mauricio Dubon out. You know, every time Verlander pitches, like ball
2: specialist. You,
0: what are, what are you doing? You yeah. know, but it's going to be interesting to see how he and Dusty kind of melt together because you can you got the sense that that click and, and dusty definitely didn't you know see eye to eye on things and, and you also wonder you know when you've been in an organization three four five years you know like click is he was hired what in, uh 2020 so he was there for about what three years i mean two to three years some of these guys that are percolating up the system are his draftees yes and so you know he's going to be you know you're going to be can't help but be partial to your guys. Well, Brand doesn't have any of his guys yet. So, you know, he was mentioning, you know, some different names, you know, at the beginning, like Blanco, you know, uh, and, you know, mentioning some different names, the center field, you know, so that's kind of, it's going to be interesting to watch this year.
2: I think that's a really great point. Um, and then look at the three roster spots. They just filled out today, you know, Yonar Diaz. I mean, they're carrying three catchers, you know, they bring Yonar in for his versatility, DH first base and, um, you know, as a third catcher, because it sounds like... I, I didn't he, think Corey Lee... But I thought Corey Lee went back down to Sugar Land. I thought he did. I was
1: just
0: Yiner.
2: a... Yiner's just the backup.
0: No, there's a different catcher. Oh, okay. Cesar,
2: Cesar Salazar. Um, okay. You know, gets his first major league call-up. So you've got three catchers now. And yeah, Corey Lee. Uh, Dana Brown said today, you know, it's like, hey, Corey Lee's a big-time guy. And big-time guys need to get at bats every single day. And so AAA is the spot for Lee at this point in time. What does that say about Salazar? Well, Brown said, you know, Salazar, he fits the role of backup catcher perfectly for what, um, you know, the Astros need. And if you're Salazar, hey, you're just happy to make the big club, and now you're here to contribute in any way you possibly can. You know, every fifth day, you get an opportunity to get some A-Bs and handle a pitcher. But um, I, I think that's an interesting point, Scott. Um, I was going to say, you know, Corey Julkes, you know, mm-hmm. Houg, he makes this, uh, makes the roster – um and who who is the other guy? It was Diaz, it was Jolks. and Martinez, Seth
1: Martinez. Seth Martinez made
2: it. There was another uh, position player. Um oh. I don't know why it's going blank right now. I have to check my Twitter. Um, but Brown even said it, upon taking the job, you know, I'm still learning people's names. I mean, it's not like he comes into the organization and he knows everybody's skill set, he knows what everybody does well. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, you know, talent, eva- talent evaluators aren't streamlined across the board. They don't all see the same things. Um, there's, you know, the template, I'm sure, you know, that you're looking at, you know, and you're crossing your T's dot in your I's, but maybe something stands out to Dana Brown more than it did to a James Click. Maybe he values X, Y, Z more than James Click maybe did. Um, What we do know, at least surface level right now, from putting all of the puzzle pieces together, from what Click, you know, uh, said in regards to how he liked to operate here as Astros GM versus how Jim Crane saw it versus what Dana Brown's philosophy is, all very different. And Crane was a much more... Like, hey, let's get this done. We've identified the problem. Get it done. And James was a very deliberate kind of guy. He's going to make sure every T is crossed, every I is dotted. He's very methodical and worked a little too slow for Crane. Well, What if you mesh both worlds, and it seems like you kind of have. Dana Brown has kind of been there, done that. He's been in the front office for a long time and has been trusted with making some very key important decisions for the ball club and has had success. Things that you can actually point to right now today that have brought value in trades and have brought value in terms of young key position players or pitchers in Atlanta. So even though he doesn't know the talent here like the back of his hand, I also like the fact that you've got a proven veteran baseball guy to come in and kind of put a new set of eyes on things and maybe identify some talent that wasn't paid any attention to by the previous regime. So that kind of excites me. I
1: think we'll go from what kind of excites you to maybe what kind of scares you and and what scared all of the city of Houston when uh, Jose Altuve, you know, wearing the Venezuelan jersey got hit in the hand with – uh, with a pitch and and everybody in the city of Houston lost their breath all at that one moment. Um, you know, the roster comes out today and it looks like it's going to be a, a combination of, of Hensley and Dubon uh, mm-hmm. to start the season, take it over that second base spot. How, how confident are you in those two guys? I, I think I'm a little more confident personally in Hensley, but it seems so far, Dusty, for whatever reason, just like he did last year, Dusty loves Dubon. Uh, and, and he's been getting a lot of the, the playing time at second base in spring training. Um, you know, how short or least does Dubon have in your opinion? And, and do you think that this is one of those guys where, where Dana Brown says, I need to go get a good super utility player. Uh, this could be my first move in a, because with everyone being DFA would here in the next few days, you know, even a guy like Tony Kemp, I, I feel like he could come in and, and be a good fit if, if he was available.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's going to be interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, Dubon, I wanted to see more of him. I wanted to see more of David Hensley. Um, I don't get overly carried away with, you know, it, 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 being scared that Altuve is going to miss, you know, at least the first couple of months. And I say at least because things have to go well. You know, he's got to heal. He's got to be swinging the bat well. His body's got to feel well. Um, you know, he's not just sitting back at the couch, you know, just waiting for his bone to grow back together, you know, on his thumb. I mean, he's working out and he's doing as much as he possibly can. You're hoping too, that while being somewhat limited, that his body responds properly, that there's not a soft tissue issue that pops up somewhere. If it's a hamstring or if it's a groin or if it's a forearm or shoulder, something like that. So, and then there's gonna be the ramp up period with Altuve. So maybe it's gonna be two months and change. You know, maybe it trends closer to three months. I'm still not worried because this is this is where the impact of this offseason really comes into play. Thank God you went out and got Jose Abreu. And I know the popular opinion, at least it seems nationally, is that hey, everybody watch out. Look for this steep decline in Jose Abreu. I mean, I don't know if you guys have taken a look at the Vegas over-under odds on his home runs or RBI totals, but, I mean, he's only failed to eclipse those numbers twice, three times in his career on the RBI front and twice on the home run front. I think it's like 22.5 or an 82.5 are his home run and RBI totals. Are you freaking kidding me? This dude's going to mash. If he's healthy, the guy's going to absolutely mash. That makes me feel good. Take Altuve out of it and you stack this lineup, you're still sitting pretty darn good one through seven, no matter how how you slice it. And the fact that, you know, you can sprinkle in a Hensley in there Um, and you you called up Julks. you've got Janner Diaz, you know, maybe their best hitting catcher since, I don't know, fill in the blank. Can you guys help me with that? When's the last time? It's Mitch Malesky, I was going to say Mitch Molesky as well. You got me there. <laughs> Mitch Molesky. You know, I could see that. Maybe – Go Jr. Tolls that for one game, the one game, a franchise yeah, franchise record for RBIs, <laughs> you know, in a game. Um, it, it to have one of the best hitters out of spring training in consecutive seasons to finally have this guy starting on the opening day roster with the ball club and uh, John Air Diaz. I think it's huge. I think it's well deserved. Great move, you know, by Dana Brown, Dusty Baker, uh, the whole staff there. For those reasons, I'm not so worried about Jose Altuve's absence. Um, but when you start compounding them with, okay, Altuve's banged up. Well, okay, Lance McCullough's banged up a little bit. Brantley, what's up with him? There's still question marks. I know I know, Jordan's smashing, but hey, man, I still worry about the hand. The hand was an issue last season. It was an issue this off season. It was an issue in spring training, and nobody seems to be worried about that. But I always have to worry about those sorts of things. I mean, that's the bread and butter, (laughs) you know? I mean, that's his hands on one of the most valuable players you have on your team and maybe the most valuable player in the future at some point in the American League, maybe in all of baseball down the road. Who knows? So I am side-eyeing that one a little bit. Um, Utility was a big issue for me this offseason. I was interested in exploring the Yuli Gurriel Idea, And it seems like the Florida Marlins have gone out and done that. The Astros didn't feel like that was going to be a good fit here. Um, and, you know, maybe it was a better fit in Florida because there was maybe more promised playing time for him there. I, and I think that's probably the case. But yeah, utility should definitely be something we pay attention to going forward, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I think what's hard with the Jose Altuve, I and mean, we, we went into it, you know, because they're, uh, in fact, one of our past four scumbags were, uh, on my account was uh, Keith Oberman, you know, for saying, you know, yeah. stop it before it kills again. Because, um, you know, and I, I told the story before, my, my cousin pitched in the World Baseball Classic you know, for Team Italy. Uh, oh. He's he's about as, as Italian as I am, which was our great grandparents. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I guess, you know, if your name ends in a vowel, then, you know, you're, you can pitch for Team Italy. But, I think what worries me, and I saw this actually in 2018, because um, I remember I, I belonged to Saber, and I, I haven't gone to many ma- meetings lately. But we we went, and you know the TV crew, you know, came in, with Jeff Blum and uh, uh, who's the TV play-by-play guy, Gonzalez, um, yeah. yeah, And they were talking about, oh, well, you know, Marwin Gonzalez is just going to get better and better and better, and I'm like. Looking at his 2017 season and said, it's screams strange career year. Mm-hmm. I think what happens whenever we, we talked about it last week where you have to cherish championships because you can get caught into the mode of magical thinking where a lot of the positive things that happened to you a year ago, which might have been sort of lucky, may not happen for you again. And maybe maybe you have some you know some bad luck, and I, I think Altuve is more just bad luck. I mean, you can get hit by a pitch and break your hand any moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, we saw Reese Hoskins you know in, a, in you know the spring training game after the World Baseball Classic, just you know ground you know fielding a routine grounder, tears his ACLs out for the year.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You and you can see injuries like that you know all the time, and so I guess you know if there's one area of this team other than you near know, the utility spot, you know, where, where do you see this team maybe taking a step back that maybe people don't readily
2: see right now? You know, I haven't thought about it in terms of a singular position, really. Um, but I, I guess I'll kind of clump them all together. Starting rotation. Um, I I guess, you know, I did talk about this uh, the other day with Sean Pendergast on the morning show on Sports Radio 610. Uh, we were going through kind of the over-under totals, and, you know, Sean was like talking about making a bet about Fromber. You know, Fromber won 17 ball games last year, you know, had a fantastic ERA. I think he finished the year with like a 235 or 253 ERA, something like that. The numbers, uh, you know, were tremendous across the board. I mean, he was seriously a candidate for the Cy Young, you know, for a good little chunk of the season there until JV separated himself from everybody from planet earth um, and took the thing home. But um, I'm kind of looking at, you know, if you want to call it a natural decline and you know what I mean by that is um, the rest of the league, like try, you know, figuring you out a little bit and making it more difficult on you when major league baseball has single-handedly, made it more difficult on you already with the pitch clock and the limitations on pickoffs and eliminating the shift. And you've got so many things going through your head now. And keep in mind, too, Fromber is a guy who over the course of the last couple of years has really developed – into a guy that's calm, cool, collected on the mound, whereas that wasn't the case before last year, really. Um, And you saw what his mechanism was last year that worked so well for him. You know, he's a guy, walk around the mound a little bit, crouch down, kind of get his mind right, take some deep breaths. You don't have time for that now. you got to throw a pitch. And so I think, you know, with those factors kind of compounding, I think, you know, um, obviously hitters around the league are looking at like, hey, this guy just kicked my butt last year. i got to hit the film room see what's going on. They're making adjustments. And it's a chess match within a game, within a series, within a week, a month, a season, and an off season sometimes. And so I think naturally, maybe he slides back a little bit. I think naturally, you know, the ebb and flow of the season, maybe Christian Javier struggles a little bit. Maybe Luis Garcia, Jose Arquiti struggles a little bit. Maybe the staff just does collectively being is that really guys for the first time in how long, do you not have a Justin Verlander? Do you not have a Garrett Cole? Do you not have a Zach Greinke, a Dallas Keuchel, you know, a staple, a proven ace in your rotation? Who's supposed to be that guy this year? Fromber, he's the opening day starter. Ain't nobody waiting on Lance Colors to get healthy, get right for the first time in how long. And so Fromber's also wearing that on his back, too and you know I hope he responds and I hope he doubles down on the type of season that he had last year I think he's certainly that talented but he is human and adjustments that's that's baseball that's the game and you see who makes more of them and who adjusts to them uh, better than the opponent and so I think from that from from that realm you know just the starting staff alone kind of is what I'm looking at is maybe to see a little bit of regression because they were phenomenal. I mean, they were one of the best I had ever seen in my lifetime last year. And I'll even throw out some names in the bullpen. What about Hector Neris? What about uh, Rafael Montero? You know, they're 33, 32 years old. Neris, what he did last year, I mean that's not really uncharacteristic for him. That dude's just that good. What was uncharacteristic for him, guys, last year was pitching for a really good ball club in a postseason run. For a World Series championship, like, he'd never done that before in his career. You know, Montero's 32, 33. Neris is 32, 33, maybe about to be 34, I think. I worry more about Montero from that point. He just got a big, fat contract, maybe a slight overpay. Um, and last year, screams to me, like you were saying about Marmion Gonzalez, Scott, career year. It was. You know, can he do it again? Um, so... Those are probably some things that I'm looking at more closely than others, the pitching staff over the position players.
1: I, I could agree with you more on, on the pitching staff. And I think just also there's going to be more pressure on every single one of those guys this year where yeah. you mentioned you don't have JV, you mentioned you don't have Lance. So every one of those starters who, you know, last year, um, Luis Garcia is a three or four or Kitties a, a four or five. Now those guys are, now their guys are, Three and four, of the rotation, and they're going to have to do a little bit more heavy lifting. Where in the past they were kind of that little sprinkle of of panache on top of look how deep the Astros are. Well, now we're going to have to we're going to have to check that depth because we really have said, hey, Fromber, you're our star, you're our you're our ace, and and I couldn't agree with that decision more. You know, I I think yeah, the walk around could be a little tough for him, but when you look at how Fromber works, he's a fast worker. So I think ideally, um, pitch clock might even work in his favor because he's got he's got so much movement sometimes guys want to step out and, and think for a second, what well, can now you can't anymore. So Fromber's a guy, I think, you know, as long as he can stay calm and collected, like you say, I think he's going to benefit from it. Um, but you, you mentioned a couple of names of the bullpen. And I think are real nerve wracking of what they're going to come back with. I think, I think another guy, you know, Dusty even lost faith in him down the stretch of the playoff. Ryan Stanek.
2: Yeah. You know, a- why? Why? yeah. I asked that question the other day. I, what well, what do you think it was? Because to my knowledge, I haven't heard a reason as to why Stanek was not utilized as he was in the regular season, and the postseason, certainly the World Series. I've i read a couple of articles on on how he had the the flukiest you know sub yeah. two
1: ERA in baseball. A lot of a lot of balls hit right at guys. A lot of uh, you know things that went in his favor. But I think he's a guy who's gotten better every single year. He's been in our system too, so. I think Stanek's on a natural progression. do I think he's as dominant 100 percent as he was last year? No, but I do think he can continue to give you good to great seventh and eighth innings and I think he's a guy that you know he maybe he did have a career, but I don't think his his floor is that far from from where he was last year.
0: Yeah, I think what's weird with him is that he um, he gives up a lot of base runners because uh, he walks a ton of guys. But, you know, he, he has this stuff. I mean, he's throwing hundred gas, you know, you can get through, you know, as long as you throw strikes. But I think what, you're, what, you're, what he's probably looking at is, you know, maybe regression to the mean of thinking, okay, eventually all these
1: base runners are going to catch up with him.
0: And, you know, maybe it happens this year. I don't know, but, you know, or maybe he's still good. You know, In the
1: playoffs, too, you don't want to put those extra base runners on. That's, well, that probably had a lot to do with what Dusty was thinking as well.
0: Well, no, but these are little moves that, you know, Click made, and that might be it, too. You know, maybe he's just thinking, this is a Click guy. I don't like Click guys, you know. Because you mentioned you know, Diaz. You know, he comes over with Maton, you know, for Miles Straw. And, you know, everybody at the time is thinking, you know, why are we making this move? Well, it turns out, you know, you probably like this move a whole lot right now, mm-hmm. you know, especially if Diaz hits well. Um, the one I want to see probably more so in the guy that really came through in the playoffs is Abreu. I think he um, he really showed showed himself. You know, he he has plus-plus stuff.
2: Yes. I, I was just going to say, and, you know, Tim, I'm glad you brought up Stanek because that's a guy that we talked about the other day as well as Abreu. You know, I think Abreu is an ascending player. I think Stanek is an ascending player. And Montero at his age, you know, as, as I'm listening to you guys talk, I started thinking about the argument that I just made too, you know, about like, hey, is this a career year, you know, given the age and the money and what's being asked of them when we're talking about Neris, um, you know, what did the Astros really kind of become known for over the course of the last five, six years of this stretch, you know, going from Brent Strom and now, uh, you know, I forget the Astros pitching coach's name, um right now is it Josh Josh Wilson, something like that. Um, you know, they've worked wonders with guys. Who's had career years when they became an astro, Garrett Cole, who got better? who cared about his age? Justin Verlander, you know? They figured some stuff out with Montero. They figured some stuff out with Stanek. I know he still walks a lot of guys, but the guy used to be really wild, you know, and walk more. Um, they've reeled him in, utilized his velocity, his movement, the way he attacks hitters. Um, and it's worked out awesome for him, you know, and there's probably a handful of other great examples. You know, who they developed, you know, Jose Architi, Luis Garcia, Christian Javier, you know, these guys, nondescript guys, nobody that's in the, you know, top 10 of, you know, the 50th, uh, best prospects in the organization was like no these guys weren't that they weren't like oh man like Forrest Whitley or Mark Appel like man we're waiting on these guys to get up at the big ball club it's like whoa who's this cat hold on man he's got something and then sure enough like you're talking about him two years later as a Cy Young candidate you know or as one of the uh, hottest young pitchers in all of baseball Christian Javier maybe the future ace of your staff You know, in Christian Javier, really solid number three guy, maybe Luis Garcia one day. He looks like it right now. Right. So, yeah, maybe maybe for me just knocking them. you know, saying career year. Let's give the Astros staff and, you know, what they've done in the film room and just preparation and overall development within the uh, organization, top to bottom. A little bit of credit here and that they've just figured some things out with guys and they've done a hell of a job uh, creating some dudes.
0: Th- yeah, my um uh, and then another guy we can't sleep on is Martinez. Uh if you look at his numbers Seth Martinez? Yeah, if you look at his numbers against righties. Mm-hmm. I mean he is absolutely dominant against righties. Yeah.
2: And I'm glad he, he made it. the ball club
1: for I am game. too. He I went to one game last year for my birthday and Seth Martinez made my stepdaughter's day. Like he signed probably fifty to sixty autographs. He was the he was the rookie on this afternoon that, that was designated as, as autograph guy and I saw him make not only my kids day, but probably 50 other kids days, took pictures, signed up. He couldn't have, and he couldn't have looked happier doing it, you know, and, and yeah. some of those guys, when they get out there, it's a drag to, to have to go do that. But seeing the way that, that he did that, you know, and, and having worked in, in baseball, in my league baseball, our goal was to make some kids day every day. That was as the staff, we had to find some kid and make their day. Um, so you want guys like that to make the big league roster. Cause it's, it's inspiring to the young fans to be able to have some like that they can, have a catch with in between innings or, or get their hat signed or get their ball signed. And yeah. speaking of which, I don't know if you saw it, you know, Sergio Romo um, retired um, yeah. and all spring, every kid who asked him for an autograph on a ball, he yeah. asked them for an autograph on his hat. And so his last ever game that he pitched, he has his hat completely filled um, with fan signatures. And I I thought it was the the coolest way to, to remember your last ever spring training.
2: Yeah, it was very cool. Uh, I'm sure you guys saw the video too of uh, them taking him out for the final time, um, and him getting you know hugs, high fives, and you know tipping his cat to the crowd, tipping his cap to the crowd. That was a really, really cool uh, moment, man. But you could tell in that he wasn't ready for it, <laughs> you know. And maybe you're never ready for it. I mean, you've been doing something like that at the highest level for 15 years. Um, you're not going to be ready for it it's probably still not hit them but that was a very very cool moment I always I always make sure you know I, I'm 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 as invested in those moments no matter what player it is for what team because I'm so you know just I guess we live vicariously through these guys to some degree you know I know I do and you just want to put yourself in the moment man and just be like man what that must be like very cool moment. He handled it like a true pro.
0: I think, um, what I think is remarkable. And I think, uh, Houston fans probably are taking it for granted. is just the number of these guys that have hit. They've come to the big leagues. I mean, Bregman struggled in his, you know, first, you know, 2016 when he's first called up, but otherwise these pitchers, Oh, Oh. And I remember, you know, I remember the dark days. Um, and I, I told Tim the story where, you know, I'm taking my daughter at the time where she's maybe three or four years old. This is like, you know, 2010, 2011. And, you know, she's looking at the, you know, at the train. She said, the train's never going to move. And I'm at that moment like, okay, do I lie to my child or do I tell the truth? It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, right. your honey is not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere tonight, but. <laughs> the the name I remember and I and I brought this guy up a few episodes ago is Jordan Lyles. Oh yeah and Jordan Jordan Lyles he was probably like a maybe a C plus, B minus prospect. But he was the only guy we had.
1: Yeah, he was our top pitching prospect. He was our top C pitching prospect. Yeah.
0: And so when they you know when they called him up, it's like, you know, and everybody's disappointed and he's he's still in the big leagues. You know, yeah. this is like you know, 12, 13 years later. Yeah. But um I think And this is kind of a holdover from the Lunau days, I think, because, you know, you can look at the Cardinals and the Cardinals are, are, they're a similar organization in that they're always calling up guys. And you're like, who the hell is this guy? Who's Tommy Edmund? Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden it's like, whoa, who's Brandon Donovan? You know, and and I think that's really the key with Houston. And I I don't know if it, you know, it's probably some luck, but it's also got to be the coaching and, and player development. Where when you get these guys coming up, they're all producing, they're all contributing immediately. And that's just so rare.
2: Yeah. And you know, maybe we don't talk, we don't give maybe um, professional baseball players the credit that we do, maybe football players, you know, and like maybe what I mean by that is, um, you know, you've heard, you guys have heard this before, like, There's a lot of NFL players out there, you know, like training camp, you start with 90 guys, you whittle it down. And, you know, for whatever reason, like whether it be a fit or a specific scheme or, you know what, we've just got too many of these kind of guys, they're NFL players that just don't make NFL squads. You know, they don't make the the 53 man and they bounce around and they make the practice squad money, so on and so forth. You know, baseball, there's a lot more players, you know, out there than a basketball squad. And, you know, even a football squad, you know, to some degree like that are really good that it's you're going to put in the time you're going to are you going to be that devoted, you know, to just um, be patient enough to have your name called one day you know, into the manager's office at AA or AAA and then give you the news, you know, I mean, those are always a lot of fun to watch because you just see like, oh, finally, you know I mean? Could you imagine like Cesar Salazar getting the news from Dana Brown or Dusty Baker, you know, today or yesterday, whenever it was like, Hey man, you're going to be at the big ball club with this man, open the you can have your name called out and it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be 45,000 people in the stands. This is you, you know, like what that must feel like. I think there's ball players out there. There's professional ball players. There's fantastic hitters out there. There's fantastic pitchers out there that maybe just won't get the opportunity, you know. Or maybe you know what? If they should have stuck it out for another season, and for whatever reason, you know what? I can't be living off of 25k a year anymore. I, I I can't be riding these buses. I got a family, you know. I got to buy a house and I got to get married. And life happens, and they make that decision where. You stick it out, you never know. Maybe your dream would have came through. It just wasn't meant to be, you know, at that point in time. It wasn't meant for you. So I, I think the ability for organizations to have the patience in some guys, to have the belief in yourself that, you know what, it may not be a popular approach or it may be viewed as being a little bit too analytically driven, it seems to have lent itself out to a world of success for teams like the Astros, for teams like the Cardinals. And, um, you know, I know there's a lot of other examples out there too. The pirates have kind of been like that, you know, to some degree, it's like, man, who the heck is this guy? You know, and the pirates just routinely stink, but guy might be a dude for somebody else down the road. Cause they, all they do is move their good players. They don't want to pay him. Um, but you can find those guys when they're given the opportunity to flourish. You know, there's some great, you know, coaching and uh, player development. If you're lucky enough to be in a system that cares about winning, um, you can, you can find those diamonds in the rough. And I think the Astros are in a great place, man. I laugh every time I hear, man, you know what? This farm system is really struggling. It's not what it used to be. Well, they moved some pieces to, to get some dudes in here, like a Garrett Cole, like a Justin Verlander. Sometimes you got to do that, but when you've got the faith in your guys to develop, you don't always need to be drafted in the top 10. You don't always need to have a, a top 10 farm system because I don't care how many top 100 prospects you've got. If a dude can play, a dude can play. People get so caught up in looking at 21, 22-year-olds. You know, I'm good with having a 25, 26-year-old guy, David Ensley, you know, coming up, getting his shot, being put in some big-time situations, and succeeding and make an opening day roster the following season because, well, one of the best players on your team, um, you know, is out with a broken hand. Now we need your big cat, and he's very capable of doing so.
1: You mentioned good times, and, and obviously we're celebrating a great time on on opening day and and doing the ring ceremony and the and the ba- and the banner unveiling. And I don't know if you remember back to opening day two thousand eighteen when they did the the banner unveiling for the- up, Yeah, I was there. Yeah. And everything it got stuck, and they had to have the guy go up there with the with the Lower leaf blower. The I I don't know about you, but I'm I'm hoping for a little smoother uh, unveiling this time. I'm I'm sure that they had a little practice, and I was and, gonna say uh, like,
2: but even then, like it's it's not your first time. You had to do it with division championships before, you know. Like I think they just threw those up there. They didn't do the whole unveiling of it the way they did there. I mean, but you'd think like, all right we we probably need to check and see if this giant tarp is going to come down when we pull it down. Like, you know, I know it's probably not the easiest thing in the world, but you get a dude up there on a cherry picker or a crane and you're going to slap that thing on there. Like, you got to have at least a trial run. And hopefully they've learned their lesson from, uh, you know, what, uh, five years ago. And I think they will. I think it'll go smooth.
0: Okay, so um, I'm going to kind of start our what if section of, of the show here. So I want you to, dep- Pick, and and of course, Tim as well, pick one hitter or one pitcher on the team that you'd say, if this guy does well this year, we're going back to at least the ALCS, if not the World Series.
2: Jeremy Pena. You know, I, I think Jeremy Ooh. Pena's got to be the guy for me. Um, what I was most intrigued with is seeing the carryover. He had a tremendous, obviously, postseason World Series, you know, MVP, um, and a really good spring, showed up jacked, healthy, um, you know, really playing well. The carryover seems like it's there. You know, it's a sophomore season in the bigs. You know, what what's it going to look like? I mean, is he going to be a perennially slow starter? Um, is he going to be hot out of the gate? I don't know. But can he be consistent throughout? You know, he was a 240-something hitter for much of the regular season last year after a pretty good start uh, to his major league career. And it was funny. Like, it seemed like the guy would go through, like, 0 for 10, 0 for 15 slumps, like, on the regular. But some way, somehow, you'd look up and, how the hell is this guy still batting 245, 247? You know, I he just found a way. I mean – Uh, The on-base, I'd like to see that improve. Obviously, I'd like to see him figure some things out at the plate, not swing it, you know, the sliders away and just have a better eye, um, be a little bit more disciplined. Um, But I I think he's got to be the guy for me because the carryover, at least to this point, however much value you put in, you know, spring training, coming off of a season, a postseason that he had, I do a little bit because – the guy clearly busted his butt this offseason in the weight room um, and working at his craft with his glove, with his bat. You could just tell. Um, hopefully that translates to more success and early success uh, with the big ball club. He's got to be the easy favorite for me.
1: Yeah, You know, I was going to take Pena, so I'll play a little different game. Um, I, I think for me, Scott, it's going to be, if, if Pena's off the board, it's, it's going to be Kyle Tucker. Uh, I think if, if Tucker puts up, Kind of those George Springer level numbers, you know, gets himself into that MVP level conversation. I, I think there's no reason this year Tucker can't hit 280, 35, 40 bombs, 100, 120 RBIs, uh, high, you know, high on base percentage, swipes 25, 30 bags. You know, if he does something like that, then I think, you know, we're we're going to be in a good spot offensively with the other pieces put around him. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I, I think on the on the starting pitching side for me, I'm, I'm circling Urquidy. I think this is a big, big year for him. We've seen what he can do in the playoffs. He's come up big in big spots, but we've asked him. But we still haven't quite seen him put together a, a, a complete season yet where he's just been, been good year in and year out. He's gone for stretches and he's had good periods. Um, but, you know, as a fly ball pitcher, he does get a little home run heavy at times. So I think now he's going to be, you know, facing, um, you know, a, going up against another threes and fours instead of fours and fives. Uh, in these matchups, and I think it's going to be a big year for him. And then I'll sneak one more in under the radar in the bullpen. It's going to be uh, Montero. You know, for me, if if Montero's good in the eighth inning, you know, that's a good sign for the Astros, because, number one, it means you got a lot of leads. And if he's good, it means you're holding on to those leads. You know, I, I, maybe I don't. Maybe I should, but I have absolutely no worries. And Presley, he looked great in the World Baseball Classic. Uh, there's been, you know, the way he pitches – it's 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 curve. He pitches off the curveball with his fastball, so you don't worry as much about getting older and losing Velo as much because that curveball's so deadly. Um, so I for me, it's if Montero's good and he's dominant out there, that means that we have a lot of leads. We're protecting a lot of leads, and we're going to be winning a lot of ball games.
2: Sorry, I got okay. so busy with Pena. You asked for pitchers too, didn't you? So yeah, I, hey, dude. go ahead. Uh, just real quick, uh, I think is a good one uh, for me. Hunter Brown you know, the guy's going to be kind of under the radar, you know, not too much should maybe be expected of a guy like that because of the small sample size. But at the same time, I think um, he's coming in with a bit of a chip on his shoulder, you know, um, and an opportunity, you know, to want, really want to prove uh, what he can do and how he can maybe bolster this staff, how he can maybe even be a savior of this staff. And they might need him to be, you know, if um, not that I'm fully anticipating this, but I wouldn't be shocked as we were talking about earlier, you know, uh, a natural decline with some of the production, you know, some of the numbers from Fromber and, you know, on down the line, you never know how often, you know, or how long Lance is going to be out. Um, he would be a guy for me. If he has a really good season and carries over that small sample size that we saw from him last regular season and at times in the postseason when they brought him in, I leave out of the bullpen, looked terrific. I think it'd be huge. Ryan Presley, you know, um, coming off of a 33 safe season, I think he's a guy um, that he was my MVP, you know, in the World Series at one point in time. Like, I thought you could have made an absolute, really strong case for him winning the MVP in the World Series just because of the high leverage situations that he came in. If it was back to back days, if it was getting four outs, like the guy just continued to deliver. He was perfect um and what this is what going to be his age 33 season 32 something like that like he's right around there if there's if i'm not worrying about age for a guy in the bullpen based on just raw ability it's ryan presley the the guy's just got the the moxie and the talent for days and so if he's clicking on all cylinders again and stays healthy Uh, I think sky's the limit, too, for this bullpen.
0: Yeah, Um, you guys stole some of my answers. Uh, Sorry. That means
2: means we're thinking alike. Yeah,
0: I was going to go Hunter Brown, and really what I'm thinking with Hunter Brown is he may only throw 120 innings. But, you know, if it's 120 quality innings, you know, if he can get in to maybe 20, 25, you know, solid starts, Mm -hmm. things are going to be looking good for this team. Now, in terms on the mound, I'm going to go with Luis Garcia. Because he was a guy you know when, when they started the spring training he was a guy that they were worried about because they outlawed his funky delivery i don't know if y'all saw that but you know his first outings i mean he was like pitching six seven k's in three innings you' like what the you know what the hell' is it? if he can because last year i remember you know he he was actually taken out of the rotation in september he was the guy they skipped yep But, you know, I think he could be that, you know, I think if Javier, if you pencil Javier in number two, I think, you know, Garcia, he's that solid number three guy. I think you're in really good shape. Uh, Hittering-wise, I think Sean mentioned it earlier in the the episode here, Jose Abreu is such a great addition to this team. And and the reason he is is that I, I think, you know, every year, except for last year, he's pretty much rolling out driving in 100-plus runs every year. And the only game I've watched you know, on TV this spring, I'm watching him up. He got a guy on third one out. He just calmly hits a nice fly ball to center field, sack fly. And we know all these guys. We know all of our hitters. We know Tucker usually slumps in the early going. Hopefully he won't this year, you know, playing in World Baseball Classic. We know that, you know, Jordan's hand is going to bother him probably on occasion, so he's going to, go through some times, you know, is going to miss time. Bregman slumped in the first half. But if you just have that one guy who he is just steady yeah. and he's producing runs, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's going to keep you afloat through some of those times when, because, you know, the thing about this team, even last year when they're winning hundred plus games, I mean, the number of times that they would get shut out or only score one run. I mean, it was like, you know, you'd watch them. They sit there and go, Thirteen runs, seven runs, they get shut out. Eight yeah. runs, five yeah. runs, they they score one. They need, you know, they need some guys that will just keep things going, you know. So hopefully, those one-run games turn into maybe three or four-run games where you maybe can squeak it out with you know really good pitching.
1: I'm gonna throw a name at you, Scott. Um, you know, a few years ago, Astros rolled out a lot of money for a big free agent signing, and, and this was a guy who capitalized on the on the sack fly that was carlos lee right he was a guy who um if he i think if, if Bray can come in and, and produce like those first few years that carlos lee was here lee was a 300 hitter 30 homers drove in 100 runs led the league every year in sack flies that was a guy who knew how to took advantage of that runner on third less than three uh less than two outs and uh, that's situational hitting has has been a bugaboo of, of the houston astros for for quite some time they are Yes, they are World Series champions. They've been to three out of the last five World Series. They are not great situational hitters. There are times where you have runner on second and third, two uh, no outs, and they'll come away with just one run out of that. You know, yeah. and, and at minimum, that should be that should be two sack flies at, at minimum in that scenario, and you should be getting two runs. But, yeah. you know, I, I think a guy like Abreu who, those good RBI guys, they just zero in in those situations. They're not k They're going to put the ball in play. They're going to find a way at least to get a medium medium range fly ball and give their guy a, sh- a shot to score. Uh Carlos Lee was someone who was exceptional at that, you know, back in the day. Unfortunately, you know, his time ran into the the time period where the Astros sucked and we didn't appreciate him at the end. Um but he really was one of the best just producers of runs. And if if a Bray, you can replicate that. Just give me 28290 and just just take advantage of your opportunities. I think you're right, Scott, because um, you know, playing with the White Sox, he didn't have as many opportunities. He still drove in 100 runs. So now you're going to have a lineup that's going to give you a ton of guys on base, theoretically. And if you just have that one guy who is a good situational hitter in this lineup, it, it could be night and day. Yeah, and you know, what
0: Carlos Lee. What's funny about him is that, you know, everybody hated him.
2: I was just going to say like,
0: because, but he averaged 100 R- 100 RBIs in his first five years of a six-year deal with the Astros. Yeah. And if you look at those long-term deals, like we're talking about those double-digit years, if you're good in five out of six of your seasons, damn, that's a win. Yeah. And and I think that's the problem when you see guys that get so highly paid, is everybody thinks, okay, now they're a superstar. It's like, no, it's the same guy. You just paid him more. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it, and Abreu is going to be the same. Abreu is not, you know, Lou Gehrig. Uh, he, he's not, you know, Albert Pujols. He is a very good baseball player who now is being very highly paid. Uh, and so that, that's kind of the difference. And what disappointed me, like the one thing, I wish we had gotten one more hitter. Of course, I'm, I'm a lover of offense. Like, and I don't know where you, where that would have happened. You know, maybe is it Wilson Contreras? I, I don't think I'd give him that many years for a catcher. Um, you know, is it like an Andrew attendee in left field instead of Brantley? You know, cause you would have a healthy left fielder now, mm-hmm. maybe, but you know, it would have been nice to have like one more hitter because I can, you know, I was kind of foreseeing, you know, how things are going to shake out that, you know, like Jordan's going to miss time. and We know now, you know, Altuve is going to miss time. And, and so, you know, giving you that more of a cushion. But that's where, I, yeah, know, I definitely like the, the Abreu signing was was definitely, I think, one of the more underrated ones in all of baseball.
2: Yeah. Um, from a value sense, too, though. <laughs> you know, just look at the market and what, what age is a factor, obviously, for Abreu. But, you know, average annual value, um, what it's become in Major League Baseball, I think uh, at the end of the season, Maybe even before that, I mean, when people start seeing this guy mashing, and, you know, I think the national pundits are going to be wrong on his decline this year. It's probably an easy one, too, because they just saw a guy in Yuli Gurriel who won the batting title two years ago become a 240 hitter the very next season. And, you know, at times couldn't hit the broad side of a barn, but when then was so huge for the Astros in the postseason and the World Series, obviously. Um, so maybe it's they're kind of going off of that, too. But people are going to be talking about uh, maybe as, as you say, a under the radar. Uh, you know, signing by the Astros in the off season, I think it's absolutely pivotal uh, because if you weren't going to bring Yuli back, um, you needed to make a you know quote unquote big splash, if you will, and you couldn't have done much better um, positionally than than a guy like Jose Abreu.
0: Okay, I'm going to go one more fun question. I asked Tim this one in an earlier episode. He never gave me an answer, <clears throat> um, so I'm going to give you a subscription to MLB TV for free. But you can only watch one team that are not the Astros. Uh, what team do you want to watch on a daily basis?
2: Angels. The Angels. And, yeah. I mean, the obvious – do I need to say it? Like, it would be terrible. You gave me, you gave it to me for free, though, right? right yeah. It's not like I'd feel bad about being out of money if uh, Mike Trout or uh, Shohei Otani got hurt for the season. <laughs> but for those two guys, like – they're in our division, and as much as the Astros, you know, get a, get to play those guys, I feel like I never get to see Mike Trout. You know, he's yeah. always hurt. And, you know, Otani, like, I I want to see him more than, you know, 15 to 19 games. Like, this guy's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I'm all about it. Um, I think he's one of the coolest major leaguers there are in the game right now. I think he's one of the coolest major leaguers that I can remember, you know, um, you know, since I've been covering the sport. But I'd have to go back to, to guy that I enjoyed watching more, even as a kid. I mean, Shohei Otani is is it, man. I mean, that, that would be an easy one for me.
1: I think for me, Scott, I, I feel like I answered it, but maybe I didn't. I think it's the Mariners. Such so a young team, a lot of good young talent. Julio Rodriguez is, is a stud uh, going into his second year um i think i think they're gonna make another run at the wild card maybe give us a run for our money with with less division games that means everybody plays the astros less right so at the end of the day there's going to be some of those other division teams are theoretically going to have better records because you don't play the best team in baseball as many times um so it's going to be a closer race and and uh i i think the mariners are going to be uh you know a thorn in the astros side for for quite a period of time they're very young they're hungry uh, they've, they've made some good moves here in the last couple of years and I, I think they're an exciting team to watch and, um, Seattle fans are just fun. They're, they're not assholes. Like some of the other guys out there, they've had a lot of losing on their end. Um, there may be some rude ones, but you know, it's, it's not the Yankees. It's not the Dodgers. It's not Boston. Like Seattle sports fans are, are, uh, pretty
2: fun realistically. You know, Seattle, correct me if I'm wrong, but up until like that. Because I think the Astros and Mariners played each other like six times within the last I don't know 15 games of the regular season last year, if I'm remembering correctly. Their regular season series was pretty close, yeah. Um, and mm. hell, the postseason, you know, it was really it was a sweep, but they were close, dramatic games. Like I fully yeah, agree I- with you. I think they're going to be a, a problem this year for them potentially if they're able to stay healthy themselves. One of I think even that was, though we swept, that was the
1: closest series of the yeah. whole playoffs. I think yeah. like match every one of those games, the Astros easily could have lost. Uh whereas, you know, the, the Yankees, it wasn't even close. Like the Yankees didn't have the talent to match up with us. And um after after the game three of the Phillies, it was I mean, the Astros turned on another level and it was over. So the, the most competitive series the Astros played, even though it ended in a three game sweep. In my opinion, was that opening round against the Mariners? Mm-hmm.
0: Those are, I think, those are excellent answers. And, and one, the one thing I was checking out the calendar because you know, you know all of the extended family were going on a cruise and we're gonna, it's going out of Seattle. And the first thing I did is I looked up and said, "Okay, are the Mariners at home? Uh, and they're going to be at home when we go on our cruise." And um, I've actually watched a couple of games in that ballpark. It's, it's a fun, you know, a fun spot to watch a game um i did see mike trout live get his first major league hit it was a 30 foot scribbler you know down you know down the third baseline you know hit the crap out of that one but excellent answers i'm gonna stay on on the uh, west coast as well i'm gonna go with the padres um i think you know, fernando tatis once he gets off of you know suspension is is just a fun guy to watch um Juan Soto, I you know he's, you know, he might have 300 walks this year, you know, <laughs> seemingly, and it's all he, he, really does. But that, I mean, that general manager, Praler, he just, he just, he is balls to the wall. I mean, every step of the way. And, he, and you know, from, from afar, you're sitting there thinking he's way too aggressive. But if I were a fan of the Padres, I'd love every second of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, having him go out there and get like Josh Hader, you're like, what the heck is he doing, you know? I mean, he's paying all these guys two, three, four hundred million dollars 400000000 million, and you're like, where's all this money coming from? Yeah. But um, but it would be fun. And, and I think, you know, definitely the Mariners, you know, that's another GM, uh, DePoto, who he just, he's also boss of all. So well. I mean, when he got Luis Castillo this last year, I'm like, I don't know if this makes sense, but damn, I, I mean, that's, that's bold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where, you know, when we're watching Click kind of just kind of twiddle his thumbs and you're like, Uh, (laughs) Um, but you know, obviously everything worked out. So,
1: yeah. So Sean, every, every show we like to, um, you know, Scott and I, we have some issues with some of the people in the sports world and we like to air those grievances out in the show. You know, we have our, our sports scumbags of the week Uh, and always, you know, we like to include our, our guests and, and give you the opportunity if there's, you know, something you've seen or, Something out in the sports world that's bothering you. And you know, oh, this is this is your platform to get it out and and, and kind
2: of call that person out on and let them know, hey, you are my sports scumbag of the week. I um, you know, I knew you guys did this, and I was really trying to rack my brain, like on who specifically I would like to uh, uh you know, call a scumbag and then give them my uh, two cents. And then, you know, we got the final four. And I started hearing just the national conversation and people just crapping on Houston. Like Houston, you have a problem. Like anytime somebody says that I just want to punch them in the face. I can't stand that. Um, so it's not directed at any one specific person, but my scumbags of the week are anybody that is crapping on the final four because it's Florida, Atlantic, San Diego state, UConn, and Miami and not the University of Houston or UT or any other blue blood uh, in the country, people that think that this is not going to be a sellout at NRG, people think that nobody's going to be watching this Final Four, like it's called March Madness, like everything that, that it encompasses has happened, this is crazy. You know, like, you could potentially have, like, one of the hottest teams in all of college basketball, UConn. It was blown through everybody by 15 points at least this tournament. You know, face maybe the best Cinderella story that we've had maybe since Butler played here years ago, right, in Florida Atlantic, making their only second conference uh, tournament appearance this year. So those are my scumbags. Anybody crapping on the Final Four, being in Houston, Houston puts on a great – uh, uh uh you know productions if it's the Super Bowl if it's the World Series we there's a reason we've had the Final 4 here so many times over the course of the last you know decade plus it's because we do a badass job of it so um that that those are my scumbags anybody crapping on the Final 4 being in Houston love
1: it absolutely love it I, you're right I mean, it's called March Madness you got the madness how can you? Uh, how can you complain about it, Scott? What about you? What are you uh, upset about this uh,
0: week? I am going to go with the Cleveland Browns, and here's why: the Cleveland Browns decided to give you know whatever we're going to call Deshaun Watson at this point. Um, I guess you know can we call him a sexual deviant? Is that you know heard that one? Is that is that kosher? <laughs> um, and they decided to give him you know five years, guaranteed two hundred. Plus million dollars all guaranteed. So, why does this make Cleveland scumbags? Well, now everybody in the NFL wants that contract, and that's where Lamar Jackson is. And you know, I feel bad for Lamar Jackson. You know, he probably should get his own agent, he should have done that a long time ago. But I understand it from his perspective. He's a former MVP, he could say he's won one playoff game, Deshaun Watson's won one playoff game. So I can get it I can, I can understand him sitting there saying I should get paid more than that guy. From his standpoint that makes sense. Except from the NFL standpoint from all 31 of the other teams that doesn't make sense. But because of Deshaun Watson's contract, I mean we're now in this situation where you know he's demanded a trade. Nobody seems to be offering him anything, at least you know concrete And, you know, is he going to be stuck playing in Baltimore? Is he going to go back, you know, with his tail beneath his legs? Okay, I'm going to accept the tender for one year. Um, I mean, that's what it kind of looks like it it might end up being. And and that's because Cleveland stupidly gave this guy, you know, a a guaranteed contract when he was already under contract for three more seasons. They didn't have to give him any more money, but they did because they were desperate to get him there. Uh, And so... And they've ruined it for everybody. I mean, I think if you were to ask you know, the other thirty one owners in the NFL, they would all call Cleveland the, their scumbags of the week, definitely.
1: I like it. It's bold. I like it. it. just I mean, Lamar's in a tough spot. You're right. I don't think I don't think he's gonna get that contract. And he he can either pull the Le'Veon Bell and, and not play this year. Or he can uh go back, play one more year, and, and then go wherever he wants. I think I think there's plenty of teams in the NFL that would give him that contract by itself if they didn't have to trade two first round draft picks with it as well. But when you've got a trade and pay, it's he's nobody's worth that realistically. I'm sorry. Like I don't know how I don't know how the Texans pulled that off with Deshaun Watson or how Deshaun Watson got that contract after the haul that they got, but no one is worth two first round draft picks. And a five-year guarantee deal if you're looking to find your quarterback of the future. Because how do you surround that guy with talent? I'm t- I'm tight on cap now because I just paid you a huge number, and I don't have any first-round draft picks. So you'll
2: get somebody on a rookie deal. I'm really passionate about you know the topic that you were just talking about, Scott. You know the Browns, Watson, and Jackson, um, and it's really all-encompassing because I think Jackson is you know phenomenal. You know anybody trying to destroy his game for the sake of, you know, making an argument that he doesn't deserve, um, you know, fully guaranteed contract or at least most of it is so long as he gets his AAV. Um, I think is ridiculous, but you know, the Browns are stupid as you, they didn't have to give him that money, but, and it's not like teams are crawling, you know, hand over fist, like, oh, let us give you this money. We're going to make it all guaranteed. No, the Browns are the ones that did it. I don't know why they did it, but they did it. And it's, Market value is about more than just one guy. You know, if you want to know your true worth, I mean, yeah, I'm sure he's gotten advice from agents. You know, Laramie Tunsell's been representing himself for a long time, and he just got paid, you know, record money again, you know, for left tackle. Highest paid in history. But he's not doing it all by himself. He's consulting guys that are in the know, you know, whoever this, you know, agent is, that's not really an agent, but that advises players, like maybe Lamar's talked to him. Maybe Lamar's talking to real agents, people that can really give him advice. But if he is, then he should take it because market value doesn't just come down to what Deshaun Watson got paid. It's what Kyler Murray's gotten paid. It's what Patrick Mahomes has gotten paid. It's what, you know, Aaron Rodgers is getting paid right now. It is all of that encompassing. That's the market versus how old are you? What have you done before in the past? What does your future look like? You know, have you been healthy? For him, Lamar, the last two seasons since his MVP year? No, he hasn't. And so he might want gobs of money guaranteed, but it's also about the timing of the market. And look at what's happening in the NFL with free agency. It's not just the Texans handing out one and two year deals to guys. It's really a trend across the league. Maybe that's just what football is kind of trending towards now, uh, because the money is so crazy. You know, they want to see what a guy is going to do for them within them system versus locking themselves into three, four, five year deals, and you know, suffering for the repercussions if a guy gets hurt or if he doesn't live up to the billing. And then you're stuck with that contract and you're worried about having to move it down the road and your hamstrung is an organization.
1: And, and Sean, I, I wonder too, when you, you mentioned the one or two year deals, I wonder if some of the players are pushing for those anyway, because they're still getting the money that they want. And if you look at the the five-year deals, most of them are, are really two-year deals with options anyway, right? So now you take a two-year deal, you bet on yourself, the market goes up. Yeah. I mean, LeBron's been doing that in the NBA for you know, five straight seasons. He never signs more than a two year deal because every year the cap goes up and you can make more money. So if you are available to be cut after the second year of your five year deal anyway, why not just sign a two year deal, control your own future, and then you don't have to, you know, have it as a being cut next to your name and you can get more money after a great season instead of coming
2: off a cap casualty and and that limits your your where you can go. Yeah. I think it's it just, works I think it works both ways. I think you make a great point
0: it's just an, an, an unfortunate situation for him because really he really needs to get as an agent. I mean, he, I mean, because Tunsil, I mean, Tunsil's not a free agent. That's an extension, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, that that's also part of it. Jackson, you know, he probably could have negotiated a good deal, maybe a year or two ago, but it didn't happen. And, you know, we don't know why it didn't happen, but it just didn't. And, and I think, you know, he's, He's worth you know, the the money that you're mentioning, all those quarterbacks, you know, if you throw them all into a bucket, he's worth you know, pretty much around what those guys are making. Like, you know, a Dak Prescott or um you know, maybe you know, Tom Brady never made that much money. But you know, those guys that are making in the 40 million, 45 million dollar range, he's he's that kind of guy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But he he shouldn't be getting because I don't think you can give anybody, especially somebody that plays the game the way he does, five years, two hundred and twenty or two hundred and forty million all guaranteed. That's nuts. Mm, yeah.
1: And it's tough too, because the market gets screwed up with, you know, Daniel Jones comes in and gets thirty five million dollars a year. So of course Lamar's gonna say, If if Daniel Jones is getting thirty five, I'm I'm at least ten year ten million a year better than Daniel Jones. I want my bag, and, you know, and it all the numbers dictate in Lamar's favor, right? Like as far as per year. Maybe you don't want to guarantee it the whole time, but the, the AAV, you're right. Those numbers dictate in his favor. There's no reason he shouldn't get it. It's it's the fact that the the
2: two draft picks associated it with it, pardon me, are, are what's really, really holding it up. Yeah. There's right. a there's a lot of factors, you know, at play. But you 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 have not every team is willing, obviously, you know, to give um, you know whether you're proven or not. I mean, the Giants. I mean, that reeks of desperation, and you know we'll see how that works out for them. You know, the deal with Daniel Jones, but not every organization is in a position to you know fork over that kind of money, and they don't have the owners that you know. Uh, you know, when you're an owner in an a NFL team, you know you're making money, and you know the market's going up. You're making more money. You're going to have to pay more money out, but there's also a lot of owners and ownership groups that probably aren't willing. Um, you know, to hamstring their organization. There's probably a little bit of uh, fear, you know, in the operating, you know, day-to-day philosophy that they have. So you whittle that down, you know, it goes from 32 teams, maybe split in half right away to 16 teams versus, all right, well, how many of those 16 teams that have the funds to pay this guy, this amount of money actually want to risk that much draft capital and um, that don't already have a quarterback in house or that couldn't get one, it's serviceable, you know, um, in for much cheaper, given the amount of talent they have. I mean, it's such a, such a formula, such a philosophy, but then too, I don't want to deal with this guy because I've heard bad things about, you know, how he is in these meetings. And I don't like the fact that he's representing himself. And I don't like the fact that he's been hurt to uh, the last two years. And I don't like the fact that Uh, you know, he only seems to thrive with this kind of receiver. That means I'm going to have to go out and spend more money and get this guy, that guy, and the other guy. It's going to cost me a ton of money, and I'm giving this guy so much money guaranteed. All of these are factors. All of these got to be conversations and considerations when you're looking at a guy like that.
0: I think, Tim, we uh, need to let you have your scumbag here
1: uh much like sean mine's going to be a collection of of people um so last week golf uh announced the need to look into bifurcation and for those of you who don't know what that is that is when there's going to be uh much like in baseball two different sets of equipment for the pros and for the amateurs in baseball pros use wood bats no one else uses wood bats everybody else is metal so in golf we are at a a breaking point with distance off off the tee specifically. Balls are flying farther than they ever have. Technology is better across the board than it's ever been. And there's no room for most golf courses to grow. There's nowhere for it to go. You can't just keep buying land and you can't just keep adding on distance to courses. At some point, something has to change. And the technology has made courses that have, have hosted PGA tournaments for 50 years now unplayable. And with that, the USGA came out and they said, hey, we're, we're going to look at changing specifically the golf ball. The ball flies too far. We need to make a pro-specific ball. And what happens is that every ball manufacturer sent their best players up to the microphone to rip the idea. Everybody but Roy McIlroy had nothing but negative things to say about having a different golf ball for pros versus ones for people like Scott and myself who go out on the weekend and, and enjoy a round of golf together. And it's ridiculous because at the end of the day, we don't need the same equipment that the pros do. We don't need the same uh, exact golf ball that they use. Titleist has no problem stamping tour use only on a Scotty Cameron putter and then selling it for $5,000 because it's the special tour one. But they have a problem with having special tour specific golf balls. I mean, it's an absolute travesty to think that, you know, there's no reason to rein in a little bit of the distance because golf was golf was played with 14 clubs. You know, you should be using a variety of your clubs. And if you can't hit them all because, you know, you're just so used to hitting the ball so far and you hit mid irons and low irons into everything. Well, you know what? You're a professional golfer and it's time to grind and it's time to practice and it's time to get better. And I get it. There's a lot of change happening in the game of golf right now, but at the end of the day, Um, you know, we shouldn't be having a course like Augusta national have to add thousands of yards to that golf course over the last 10 years, because people are just hitting the ball so far. And, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that people like, you know, people like myself, I I carry a 1.6 handicap. You can look me up on the USGA website. You'll see it. It's not going to affect me one bit. I, I have... I'm still gonna buy the same Pro V's. I'm still gonna buy Kirkland Sigs when I'm when I'm running low on cash. But either way, it's not gonna affect me. So I why do I have an opinion on it, and why do everyone run to Twitter and freak out because there's gonna be bifurcation? We're still gonna buy the same new clubs. You when you make there's specific clubs made for hackers out there. There's ones that have offset to affect a slice. They make regular flex shafts. They make senior flex shafts. Tours aren't play tour pros don't play those shafts. Tour pros don't use that stuff. No one tour pros don't use the hybrid irons that old men need to get up and down the fairway. They already make stuff specific for the amateur. And people need to stop freaking out over the idea that they're gonna make a golf ball that flies 320 instead of three fifty.
0: That's also, you know, what's funny is as a kid I remember hearing that there was an island that had its own course. And, you know, it was a very, very small island, so they didn't have the real estate, you know, to make a normal 18, you know, you know, whole golf course, 7,000 yards. So it ended up being 5,000 yards or, you know, something like that. And so what they did is you had to uh, play with like a 60 compression golf ball. And, and as everybody knows, you know, golf balls come, you usually, unless you're playing like a women's ball, it's like 90 or a hundred, right? And if you're really, really good, you play the hundred, if you're, you know, you're kind of a regular hacker like I am, you know, you play a 90, but you know, this, these things have been done, you know, before. And, and of course, the USGA needs to do some other things too. Well, like, you know, if you can't make the course longer, make it tighter, you know, make it, you know, grow the rough six inches like they do with the US open because, you know, nothing says I'm not bombing at 350 anymore. Like if I know, if I just go out of the fairway, just a titch, I'm getting a bogey.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, and so there there are all kinds of different things that you can do, creative things that you can do. But I think, you know, for, and we've talked about golf a lot on the show. And one of the things that I love about watching golf, you know, you like to see guys shoot like 61, 62, 63. I mean, that's fun seeing a guy go real low, but we know what else is fun is watching like TC Chin back in the 82 U.S. Open, double hit it out of the bunker. And you're like, Huh? I've seen myself do that a few times.
2: <laughs> these guys
0: struggle too. Thank God. Yeah. And that's, yeah. you know, that's the fun part, you know, for for people who play golf fairly often is when you see guys struggle, when you see guys, you know, particularly, you know, on these greens like at Augusta with, you know, with the Masters here in a, in a couple of weeks, I mean, there's going to be some three and four putts on those greens. And it's like, thank God somebody else does. it.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I think you made a really good point, uh, Tim. I, I love it. And also I'm, I'm jealous on you, this fact that you're such a good golfer. I am, I'm not there yet. I got close one, one point in time, but, uh, not there yet at one handicap, really impressive. Uh, but the point you made about like, Hey, you know, look, they're hitting, you know, these great drives and then these shorter irons into the green and wedges into the green. A lot of the time, if you're Bryson DeChambeau and you hit your pitching wedge, just a ridiculously long ways. Like I do my seven iron, um, Yeah, I'd like to see like these golfers um, show it off a little bit. You know, I want to see more uh, four or five iron shots a little bit. I think that would add something to the game. It's more intriguing than see a guy just lace a drive 350 and then up and in with a lob wedge and, you know, you nail your putt. Um, I want to see more thinking. I want to see, you know, more clubs used. And there's only so much a golf course can do. I mean, that costs a lot of money as well. But, I mean, I think you know, bringing in a different golf ball, I think that's the initial reaction. But I think, I don't know how long this has really been discussed or kind of been out there, but I kind of get it. It's the natural reaction. Like, this is going to cost us money. People aren't going to buy these clubs, you know, with the regularity, and they're not going to buy the newest technology when there's this, that, or the other golf ball out there that's, you know, limiting what you can do. Um, I think that's the initial reaction. But I fully agree with you. People are always going to be in the market for these things. They always want what the tour pros have or get the closest thing to it. And it's just a cash cow business. It's something that, um, you know, isn't going anywhere. It's just going to continue to thrive. It's just another product out there. And to me, it's a nothing deal really at the end of the day, Um, you know, for, for the average hack like me or even a one handicapper like you, we're always going to want the best.
0: And yeah, I think, you know, what's going to end up happening is I think it's going to be the same thing that's, that's happening probably in baseball that happened in basketball. Uh, it happened in football, you know, when you have the play clock, how long should the play clock be? Well, they settled on 40 seconds, you know, in football. Uh, they settled on 24 in the NBA, you know, they used to, yeah, college used to be, what, 45 seconds, I think, way back in the day. And they, they found out that I was way yeah. too long. And it's going to be the same thing with the ball. It's going to, they're going to take some distance off and then they're going to end up adjusting. And I think it's going to be the same thing with the pitch clock. I'm not, you know, I'm not freaking out over it. They're going to figure out that, Hey, you know, maybe in the late innings, maybe we need to just, you know, kind of relax that pitch clock rule and let the natural, you know, drama of the game kind of play out. And, and you've already seen, I've already seen stories where the players have given some feedback and they're going to kind of loosen the rules a little bit. And it's going to be the same thing with the golf ball. They're going to I just... think
1: go ahead I I was just say I think it's going to make for if they take some of the distance out. It's going to make for more enjoyable golf mm-hmm. because when I was growing up, you know, I, I still remember the the Chris DeMarcos, the the David Toms of the world where these guys hit it 265, a, a good rip was 285 for them off the tee and they still found ways to be competitive and win golf tournaments. If you don't hit it 310 with your driver off the tee on today's PGA Tour, you can't win. Period. Like you don't have a a good driver of the golf ball. Isn't it someone who hits a three ten, it's three fifty. So we're just going to get more creative shots. We're going to get better golf for TV. Uh, And I think we're going to get more fluid leaderboards too, because there's, if if you're hitting the more long irons into Augusta greens coming down the stretch, there's, there's a three by three landing area on that green where you can have a flat putt. Otherwise you've got something crazy Mm -hmm. bending. So it's a lot easier to hit that little landing area with a nine iron than it is a six iron. And you know, it's just—I think we're going to have more exciting golf. We're going to have better finishes. um You know, I think it's maybe not as much like the pitch, like Scott, but maybe more like baseball, where they play with the ball, right? Like they're constantly yeah. toying with yes. with the ball to see how it's going to fly, what's best. They're, they'll find something that works. And I mean, obviously, this is America, we're a capitalist country, and those companies are going to do what they can to protect their investment because it is. There's no way to get that money back, essentially, right? If you have to make a, a pro-specific ball. Um, there's no amount of marketing. You, you know, you're just making that only for the pros. And it's the same thing with wood bats in baseball, though. You know, you're, not, you're not making any money back on, on bat sponsorships because at the end of the day, people aren't buying wood bats. And if they are, they're adults playing a wood bat rec, rec league or one kid who has that one wood bat that he warms up with. It's, 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 a, it's a net loss for the company to be able to gain access to them with their other products. And they know that. Golf knows that. But they're just trying not to have to spend that money.
0: Well, and it's not, it's not even going to affect it. Even if I accidentally got a pro ball, it's not going to affect my game any.
1: You don't compress it enough to or yeah, you never notice ex- the difference. Exactly.
0: I, I can't, you know, I racked up my shoulder years ago. I used to, you know, Tim and I both played high school golf. And, um, I mean, I used to be a pretty damn good golfer, but I'm not there anymore. I mean, I, can't, I just can't get the club at speed. And so if you give me that pro ball, I'm going to hit it the same 200 yards that I hit my driver now. And so, I mean, I think for most hackers, it's not going to, you know, even if they accidentally got a tour ball, it's not going to make a big difference. It's not like they're suddenly going to hit it only 150 yards. And and so I think what we're going to see is, you know, and, I, and you're mentioning some names. I remember guys like Corey Pavin, uh, Mike Reed, Mike Reed, they used to call Radar. He could only hit it like 240 off the tee, but, you know, on a 400-yard par four, I mean, he was sticking an iron within two feet of the hole. Um but, you know, of course, when they started making holes 450, 470, 480, he couldn't compete anymore. Um, but, yeah, they're going to they're gonna figure it out. They're going to figure out that like, maybe, you know, if the average distance goes down to 270, they might figure, out, okay, wait a minute, that's, 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 we did too much. So we dial it back up. Maybe we go 280, 290. You know, they'll figure it out. They'll adjust, just like you said with the baseball. Uh, they'll do the same thing. I mean, they'll, they'll figure things out. There'll be a sweet spot. It'll be fine.
2: If they're, if they're going to make them change golf balls though, don't waste more money on developing a pro tour golf ball. Like they should be playing with what I play with the recycled golf balls from Academy or target. Okay. Like (laughs) they exist already. Just everybody gets a max fly noodle. That's what you're playing with. You know, like (laughs) Well, you know,
0: know, Leslie Nielsen, he came up with this great quote. He says, the difference between a $1 ball and a $3 ball is
2: $2. (laughs) That's the truth. Yeah, it's so so true. You know, wash them, you know, clean them up a little bit, put tour model on there and call it a day. Like, you don't need to waste so much money on developing like a pro ball, which is essentially the ball that you used to use probably for a lot of these guys when they were teenagers. It's like a 15-year-old ball. You, know, yeah. you can go out and find a million of those in the weeds. Okay, I think uh, everybody everybody plays Top Flight XLs from now
1: on. That's what we get. Exactly. No more no more spin around the greens. Everybody's playing Top Rocks. That's the new tournament.
0: Let's play. do a club special. You know, come on, get exactly. one of those.
1: Hey, it would get, you would be able to get more new clubs often, right? Because hitting Top Flights is never good for your driver. No. <laughs> right. They need to hire me. I'll help them save money. <laughs> so... Sean, we really appreciate you coming on and joining us. It's been an absolute blast having you on. Real quick, where can, where can everybody find you? Um, obviously, you, you work with 610, but if they
2: enjoyed it and, and wanted to reach out to you, where can they find you? Oh, you can always check out SportsRadio610.com. I put stuff up there uh, regularly. I try to um, you know put fresh content up there uh, daily, not daily, every other day. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter at Sean Bajani, Instagram at Sean Bajani as well. Uh, try to stay as active as possible on there and uh, talking ball on these podcasts with you guys. Um, so uh, continue to check us out, man. I know uh, you, do
0: you have your own podcast or, or at least I've seen you on podcast.
2: Yeah. I uh, host Houston sports talk with Robert land. Uh, we do a show on um, Mondays and Thursdays. It was Tuesdays and Thursdays. Now it's Mondays and Thursdays. We did uh, Cougar basketball post game shows during the tournament. We always do a Texans post game show during football season. We'll be doing some, uh, Baseball shows, uh, you know, probably some post-game shows live after some of the bigger, more marquee series during the regular season. But, um, yeah, uh, you can catch us out at least uh, – catch us a couple of times a week. Uh, Talking ball, they are usually 30-, 45-minute podcast. We have today's uh, top stories and uh, all the hot topics for our teams in town.
1: Awesome.
0: All right, Tim, how about you? Where are we, where are we finding you?
1: Hey, as always, Tim underscore Costello. Uh, 10 on twitter and if you haven't already please be sure to like and uh, follow our facebook page the snap hook Um, always enjoy having some interaction with our listeners there and um, again we do post our our tweets of the week and uh, as you saw last week our candid camera shot of of, uh, scott mid-stretch mid-podcast not exactly his Best Maybe angle? Finest, but, not
0: the finest moment, no. But
1: when you're live, that's what you get. That's the live in the moment Tim figured out how to take a screenshot on his PC, and that's what you get.
0: <laughs> um, and as for myself, uh, you can find me at SBarzilla uh, on, on Twitter. Um, I'm also you know, pretty active writer with Battle Red Blog. I uh, do uh, a couple of weekly. I had Sean on with that, my five questions uh, feature, which I'm... Yeah, kind of running out of running out of Houston radio people, unfortunately, for the draft. But we'll keep it going as long as we can.
1: I'll and be yet here. We here. Uh, we, uh, we did get confirmation. We'll have a uh, pretty big Astros guest joining us here coming up soon. So everybody, stay tuned. Uh, we'll keep everybody informed on the the Facebook page. But uh, let's just say one of the one of the voices of the Astros uh, is going to be joining us here soon. So we're very excited for that. Uh, this episode coming out Thursday morning. Going to be uh, my golf league night. Hopefully, I can represent the the snap hook well. It, it didn't go so well last week, but uh, you know I owe it to the listeners to to bring home a W one of these weeks. And I was swinging it pretty good with the first tee kids today. So, Scott, I'm, I'm hoping this week is the week that I I bring home a little snap hook glory.
0: Yeah, watch out for those sandbaggers.
1: No, they're they're out there. <laughs> but hey, we appreciate everyone who joined us. Sean, again, thank you so much for. Uh, taking the time to join us tonight it was it was fantastic to uh, pick your brain a little bit and and take a take a trip down memory lane some of those some of those names you dropped especially from the Rockets time period with Yao yeah um, I I, I still fondly remember coming home and and watching every one of those games and uh, was such a huge Luis Scola guy you know those those teams were so fun to watch so So we appreciate you sharing that appreciate you guys having me man we'll do it again We absolutely will. We'll be sure to have you back on, but that's going to be it for today. We appreciate everybody who joined us today, made us a part of their day uh, and continues to join the Snap Hook movement as we grow this podcast. But that's going to be it here. Uh, We look forward to having you back on again for our next sports episode where we're going to have another big guest. But thank you so much to everyone who listened and we'll see you next time on the Snap Hook. you for tuning into the snap hook and making scott and i a part of your week we wanted to recognize that our intro song is called energetic indie rock by alex scroll and this outro music is good vibe by Twisterium. we appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the snap hook movement we we'll look forward to seeing you next week on the snap hook